Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On June 30th, the Chinese government passed a so-called national security law that criminalized free speech and political activity in Hong Kong. This move was a major escalation in Beijing's effort to crack down on dissent in Hong Kong and bring Hong Kong more firmly under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. Since the 1997 handover of Hong Kong from the United Kingdom to China, Hong Kong enjoyed a special status that gave it a degree of political autonomy from Beijing. This included freedom of speech and other common liberties for the people of Hong Kong. This was known as the One China, Two Systems model. In recent years, as China has become more powerful on the world stage, the Chinese Communist Party has sought to erode Hong Kong's political independence. Last year at this time, there were massive peaceful protests against a law that Beijing sought to impose on Hong Kong that would permit the extradition of people from Hong Kong to China. In the years since, police and pro-Beijing authorities have cracked down on protests. And now, with this powerful new law, dissent has been fully criminalized. People are being arrested for the signs they are waving. The new national security law, says my guest today, Victoria Tinborhoi, means the one China, two systems model is dead. Victoria Tinborhoi is an associate professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. We kick off discussing the content of the new national security law before having a broader conversation about its political and social implications. As Victoria Timborhoy explains, this new law very much is ushering in a new era for Hong Kong. And I just want to say before I start, and I mentioned this in the episode, but I find the protest movement in Hong Kong very inspiring. In the face of creeping totalitarianism, they are resisting. And I'm glad to shine a spotlight on this issue. As always, if you would like to get in touch with me, please use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. I love to hear the suggestions that you have for people I should interview or topics I should cover. And if you are a regular listener to the show, I recommend you become a premium subscriber to unlock dozens of bonus episodes, and also access to my daily global news clip service, among other great rewards you get for supporting the show. Thank you in advance, and I'll post a link to the premium subscription in the show notes of this episode. All right, now here is my conversation with Victoria Tinborohoi, Associate Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, 
and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The national security law, while the name is itself says national, it is really not about national security, not about the security of the country, but about the security of the regime, the security of the Chinese Communist Party. Because since 1989, since Hong Kong people protested to support the Tiananmen movement in China, Beijing has always been trying to make Hong Kong safe for the CCP. And so essentially, this is the latest episode. The national security law criminalizes four areas of uh, both actions and activities, secession, subversion, terrorism, and coercion. And these are all very vague and broad terms. So they include not just actions, but also activities. And terrorism, for example, is defined by not just any uh, causing any bodily harm to other people, but also blocking traffic or um, doing something about government buildings. And then at the same time, it's not just the actual act of um, causing destruction damage, but also any kind of assistance would be would also get people uh, into trouble. Uh, for example, in providing any uh, shelter, if you know there's one someone who, who just blocked the road and came into your store, your small businesses, and you provide whatever kinds of assistance, then you could also be subject to the law. And um, subversion can be anything that challenges the regime. And then uh, secession, meaning that you call for independence. But at the same time, even that is very, very broadly, broadly defined. The first things that got banned, one, the slogan, liberate Hong Kong revolution of our times. If in Beijing's eyes, that seems like color revolution. So while it... Beijing has been saying that, you know, we are, the law is really only targeted at a very small minority of people. But essentially, we're talking about two million people protesting in the street um, beginning from June last year. I mean, the way that you describe the law and how it covers such a broad spectrum of activity and is rather vague in its um in the kinds of specific criminal offenses that can be punished. It just seems like it is a law that is a pretext to arrest or detain anyone uh, the regime thinks is, is, you know, fomenting dissent in any way. You are quite right. Um, And we have already seen how the law is being implemented. So on day one, the slogan, Revolution of Our Times, uh, as well as um, is a slogan that says Hong Kong independence were already banned and people were arrested and also subject, subject to the charge of uh, under the new national security law. So anyone who is waving a banner saying Hong Kong Revolution of Our Time, um, those people are, many of those people are now arrested under that law for, you know, holding a sign or having a banner saying that title, that slogan. Yes, yeah, so on day one, uh, hundreds of thousands of people actually show up still, even even after the law had come into effect, and then ten people were charged under this law, and some of them were, were not actually waving a banner or holding a placard. Some of them had the slogans in the backpacks. 
having identifying yourself with a slogan or having the slogan is is now been used as a pretext to arrest people. Yes, and then afterwards, then um, there also some books were pulled out of public libraries, and those books do not even contain those words. So we can also talk a bit about the Mosisto, how chilling the national security law is. Hours before the National Social Security Law um, was gazetted in Hong Kong, gazetted, meaning promulgated and acted. Demosisto, the party formed by Joshua Wong and some other young people who came of age um, during the Umbrella Movement, they disbanded several hours before. And essentially, the hope is that by disbanding, then they do not, they don't no, no longer exist, and help, hoping that they can protect the members. And then another another um, core leader of Demosisto. He has since fled Hong Kong because, partly because he has not been under any serious any arrest or warrant, and um, so he's was still keeping his travel documents. Yeah, and and that's Nathan Law. Yes, and yeah, one of the leaders. So, so I mean, it seems like one of the immediate effects of this new law was to disband the major political party that was calling for Hong Kong independence and universal suffrage in Hong Kong. Uh, and it seems based on that, you know, basic um, sort of result that the net from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, that seems to be a pretty effective result from enacting this law. Yes, yes, people are in fact very scared. And I should also add that uh, after these protest slogans have been banned, people are like, okay, so we do not know, you know, what other slogans are going to get banned. We are going to protect, protect protest with just blank sheets of paper. The people who did that, they were also arrested. So, and, and we should say, we saw these stunning pictures out of Hong Kong over in recent days where people who are you know, not deterred by this crackdown uh, are now protesting by holding up blank white sheets of paper. It's sort of like a silent protest uh, in protest that they can't scrawl the slogans on those pieces of papers they want. They're just holding up blank papers. And now even those people are being arrested. Correct, and therefore this is essentially blanket blanketing of uh, of fear just coming down Hong Kong. Uh, the way that first we can exp- understand this just through the words of Mr. Tam Yujong. He is the only Hong Kong delegate to the National People's Congress Standing Committee, the body in Beijing in charge of drafting the law and enacting the law. And um, he said that the law has to be really harsh in order to have any deterrence effect. And it, it has produced that deterrence effect. So, you know, parties were disbanded. A lot of people, I mean, people fled Hong Kong if they could. And uh, also, you, last year, that you, we saw a million, two million people march in the street, even on July 1st. But this year, the police would not issue any no, no objection permits. So very few, very few people show up. And those who show up, now they know that they have a very high chance of getting arrested. And then you could also be charged under the new national security law, which means that you're subject to life imprisonment. And worse, in quote-unquote serious and complex cases, then Beijing asserts central jurisdiction. You can be taken across the border where you can be subject to any kind of torture. Not that you know the police is already torturing people because the people who were the few guys arrested on, on July 1st under the new law, they came out with bone fractures when they showed a court. When at the moment of arrest, they did not have any obvious uh, injuries. But if you're taken across the border, then they can do anything to you and even uh, have execution. 
this is so, the very part. You know, when we spoke last, um, the momentum in terms of uh, the protest movement was firmly on the way, on the side of the protesters who are seeking universal uh, suffrage, who are seeking to keep their freedoms of speech and liberties that people of Hong Kong had been accustomed to. Uh, they had successfully, at the time, stopped that extradition bill. Uh, a number of pro um kind of democracy parties had won local elections, but now you have this one draconian law and it seems that this protest movement that, that at one point a year ago had so much hope has been crushed almost overnight. Uh, you are quite right, but it's not just overnight. Essentially the protest movement has actually been crushed over time already because first the police already began to refuse to issue no objection permits, which render almost any kind of protest uh, illegal, unlawful, and subjecting people to multiple years of imprisonment. For example, on April 18th, long before the law was enacted, a group of 15 very prominent moderate leaders, pro-democracy leaders in Hong Kong, were arrested in one go, and they are subject to five years of imprisonment just for uh, organizing and participating in peaceful protests uh, on August 31st last year. And then over the the past few months already, that's with very massive arrest, because by even before the law was enacted again, that about 10,000 people had already been arrested. And many people Many thousands who do, who could escape arrest also probably suffer from quite a bit of injuries because medical workers were organizing these underground networks of providing medical care. Um, people were injured, especially if they're young and they go to the hospital, they are subject to arrest as well. So it has been going on. But what we were talking about the last time was also that, okay, so if you can't really go protest, what can you do? Because people had also organized a general strike last August. It didn't go very well. Not many people supported, and they decided to organize unions. Early on in this year, many different professions organized their, their unions, hoping that they could organize strike, more effective strikes. But the regime, the authorities, have also made uh, labor strikes illegal by uh, denying promotion to these to people in charge, responsible. By denying, by firing teachers or civil servants, especially those that the authorities have a lot more leverage over, and so there was another attempt to have to run to have a, a general strike and a, a class boycott right before the law was expected to be passed, but they couldn't really get it going. Hmm. So, I, are we seeing right now just the end of Hong Kong as a bastion of, of liberty and, and space where civil society can operate in free speech. I mean, you know, a year ago I was interviewing a guy from Amnesty International in Hong Kong. Um, I can't imagine now that groups like Amnesty or other civil society organizations or um, press, which has operated with a degree of freedom in Hong Kong, will operate that way in the future. I mean, is this the end of, of Hong Kong as we know it? Yes, there are two layers to that question, though. So let me do, do, you talk about, you know, uh, the one country, two systems model. That is definitely dead. It is dead because the one country, two systems model is supposed to protect the Hong Kong system with free press, freedom of speech, everyone just speaking your mind freely, um, going to protest, and you don't have to worry about, you know, some consequences afterwards. 
that system is dead. But whether or not Hong Kong is dead, that is a different matter. What is also very interesting is that when people, so we were told about the um, the law only by late May, and then it took the National People's Congress Standing Committee like just a month to rush through the law and and uh, enacted it. During that month. Many people in Hong Kong were just really trying to brush up their knowledge of experiences and lessons of uh, ter- uh, totalitarianism. So they were already spreading knowledge that how do you survive this period of darkness that's going to come down on us? They talk about staying as professional, going to work as usual every day, um, try to uh, diffuse orders if you cannot uh, reject them. And just living a normal life. If you cannot go to protest, do things, do small things. Light a candle by the window. Uh, go to the go to um these neighborhood stores that you know are pro democracy. Support each other. And the regime is also in imposing an informal system. There are specific articles asking people to report on others, and how to conquer that. Hong Kong is a very vibrant civil society. People trust each other. People really like each other, especially with all those protests. So they also are talking about how to rebuild or consolidate that level of trust by community work, by doing just neighborhood work. We are talking about, um, you know, what happened after the Prague Spring. We are talking about what happened during the apartheid era, South Africa. Or what happened to Myanmar after the regime uh, uh, canceled Aung San Suu victories in the elections in 1988 and then the, the aftermath. But at the same time, people also still hoping that if we can keep up our spirit, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. So this is what we are seeing. So Hong, the one country, two systems is that But Hong Kong will not die if people do not allow it to die. I mean, that's really heavy. Um, I just, I, I just can't imagine being someone, you know, someone my age, you know, 39 living in Hong Kong, having grown up in a system where I could speak freely. And suddenly I have to worry if my neighbors are informants uh, on me and that the freedoms in which I had grown accustomed to are, are not there. And then it's like a whole other added layer that you alluded to of what one's sort of obligations and moral responsibilities are in resisting that kind of totalitarianism. I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, you know, I get chills looking at those protesters holding the blank signs, knowing that they'll probably be arrested for that. Um, yet at the same time, you know, as like someone who studies the world, I can kind of see the writing on the wall. China is a dominant power and they will take control of the Chinese Communist Party for the foreseeable future. We'll do it. It will in, in Hong Kong. Um, and so you have, I have these like almost like competing feelings when I'm watching this. On one hand, I'm inspired. On the other hand, I'm I'm sort of depressed. You are quite right. It is very happy to the point that I think a lot of people don't even know how to react. And even before uh, the announcement of this law, Hong Kong's population was already suffering from a widespread phenomenon of post-traumatic syndrome. Um, Last fall, there were multiple studies by psychologists and psychiatrists pointing to this problem. And I think that a lot of people I know, they have not really slept much. It's very hard to fall asleep. It is very hard not to have nightmares in the middle of the night, even if you can fall asleep. 
So this is a really terrible situation. But it's just that even though it seems true that the writing is on the wall, but if um, people want to tell the world that that we know that that Hong Kong is falling, but we want, also want the world to know that we have put up a good fight, and so then it maybe um, Hong Kong's descent can be arrested a bit if the world continues to pay attention to Hong Kong, just as what these people hope for. Um, another sort of question I want to ask you is: What should be the role of you know, the United States in, in, in this all, and also U.S. companies that have, you know, large footprint in Hong Kong. Um, is there anything that companies can do and that the U.S. government can do um, to perhaps, you know, slow this creeping authoritarianism uh, that's taking over Hong Kong? Um, except that it was the, the creeping authoritarianism was slow before, and now it is sudden. As you said, it's almost overnight. and and so but the national law was announced on June 30th. And just on Monday, they issued further regulations based on Article 43 on how uh, these different requirements are to be set up. It's really chilling because it is asking the, these international companies, Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, Twitter, whatever, that they have to provide information if requested. They do not have the rights to remain silent. If they do not comply, they are subject to imprisonment as well as heavy penalty. So, so far, like employees of yes. Twitter or Facebook or um, any company that is in Hong Kong or even in, in mainland China could potentially be arrested if their company doesn't comply with government orders to turn over information on individuals on their platforms you exactly so uh and so far that the all of these companies they unanimously announced that they are quote and unquote suspending the authorities request for information but the question is for how long they can do that we also have learned a lesson from um for example the the london-based bank hsbc it uh originated from shanghai and then moved to hong kong after the communist takeover of, in 1949 it makes most of its businesses in Hong Kong. And several weeks ago, in the mid, just in the middle of the National People's Congress Standing Committee drafting the, the law, HSBC was forced to, to pledge support for the law. And no one has seen the law. They didn't know what they were supporting. So you do not even have the rights to remain silent and to not to provide information. You do not have the rights to also remain silent in not supporting something that you know is very draconian. So for how long can these companies dodge that requirement? It is really sad in the sense that uh, people used to, to think that Hong Kong's international connectedness, because it is so advantageous to Beijing, that the people were hoping that Beijing would not just destroy everything. But it seems that Beijing is taking, just reversing the situation in the sense that there are already these international companies in Hong Kong they have their assets, they have their experts, they have the local employees, and so they can't really pull out that easily. So we can keep them hostage. This is what is happening. And then what is even more sad in the sense that over the past few years, you've had American businesses who continue to lobby the, the administration to not antagonize China. So now what are they going to do? And then you mentioned earlier too about uh, what about Amnesty International. So there are also these international human rights organizations. 
they could be subject to another crime that we kind of uh, skipped earlier, collusion. If you criticize Beijing and you have connections with the outside world or locals who talk to Human Rights uh, Watch or, or Amnesty International, provide them with information, these can all be criminalized under the new law. What companies are being complicit right now? What American companies are being complicit in, in this situation in, in Hong Kong? I don't really know. I'm not too much in the business side. Um, so so this, I said that if Facebook and WhatsApp and all these companies so far have been saying we are not uh, fulfilling any of those requests, the question is for how much longer that they can do that. Uh, and then MCham, what is MCham's role? Everyone is, I think, scrambling to understand what this law really means. I think that um, with these regulations, Beijing is going to literally kill Hong Kong, kill American international businesses in Hong Kong. And there may well be uh, a big rush of people trying to sell the assets or moving the liquid assets out of Hong Kong. And so maybe this is like the situation is so bad that no one can look the other way and pretend that, you know, this is not going to affect us in a sense, you know, if they are, can be complicit. Maybe they cannot. They are forced to, you know, it's impossible for them to be complicit. I guess what's, I mean, just kind of interesting and, and shocking is that, you know, Beijing seems willing to sacrifice the economic engine of Hong Kong in sort of the name of sort of political consolidation of power. They're willing to crack down on Hong Kong, uh, despite the potential economic fallout that might result from forcing all these companies out of, of Hong Kong. I would say that's definitely true, that um, if we, be, we go back to what, how we began with that, this law is about regime security. It's about making Hong Kong safe for the Chinese Communist Party. Beijing never likes the idea that there's this free will in society giving shelter to all these mainland Chinese dissidents and also uh, that they enjoy a certain degree of um, uh, electoral, electoral democracy. And so this is really going all out. Why the current CCP leadership is willing to go to be so blatant, one, I, my, my suspicion is that it's always been in the works. And then also, I for so long, I was hearing from all the international observers or other political scientists saying that, oh, always were well in Hong Kong. You know, they haven't rolled out the tanks to attack Hong Kong people like that they did in Tiananmen. And then maybe they were thinking that, I mean, Chinese leaders were thinking that so long as we do not roll out military tanks, we use other means of coercion and repression, then maybe the world will continue to look the other way. I think that is part of the bet, and especially because during the coronavirus, for a lot of people, you know, a lot of the listeners, if for some reason you have to wake up every morning to worry about losing your job and not being able to pay your mortgage, you don't really have much time to pay attention to what happens in Hong Kong, or Xinjiang, in Taiwan, in these places. And so I think that's the bet. But at the same time, it's also Xi Jinping trying to, to move in his, his very, very heavy-handed repression from Tibet to Xinjiang to Hong Kong and then moving on next to, to Taiwan. Maybe he's hoping that he can um, rein in all of these peripheral problems and become the greatest Chinese leaders. When this is all completed, then he can repair the damages because then the people have no choice but to follow China's rules. Can I ask maybe one last question? You don't have to answer this if it's if it's too personal. Um, so you're you're from Hong Kong, right? Like you're you're born and raised there. Yes. 
if you were there now, would you try to leave? I would. And at the same time, though, uh, it's so now if I were there, I would keep my mouth shut until I can leave. But at the same time, because I've been speaking so much about Hong Kong and I'm already in the U.S., now the cost to me is I cannot go home. When was the last time you were able to go home? I visited Hong Kong in 2017, the last time, and I regretted that I didn't go back last year because when my daughter went, I couldn't make it. I had another conference, and when my husband went, he went as I was in the middle of teaching, so I also couldn't go. So now I can't go back to Hong Kong. Um, but then at the same, I would also say that the crime of collusion is targeted at particular people like me that we are in the U.S. or overseas lobbying for policy changes in the U.S. elsewhere. And then they want to make sure Hong Kong is cut off from this kind of support. But because I know I can't go back, so I may as well step on my advocacy. So um, the Hong Kong Democracy Council, the Hong Kong people in America have formed. In fact, we've been very successful in getting multiple legislations passed by the Congress in total bipartisanship, and we're pushing for more rescue packages for Hong Kong people. Uh, well, Victoria, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with me. It's a, obviously a very fraught situation right now, so I'm just glad to have you help me make sense of it, help my listeners understand it a bit better because hong kong just needs attention i am just worried that the very it's been only a few days um but then i think the massive arrest will come when the world really is looking the other way all right thank you all for listening thank you to victoria i appreciate her taking the time to speak with me and Again, this is a very big global story. This is a place within just a few years has gone from being able to exercise freedom of expression to having it taken away. And uh, it's, it's both depressing, but also the resistance that many of the people of Hong Kong are putting up against this is, is deeply inspiring to me. So I'm glad to continue to revisit this story on the podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.